Good evening. And I just want to say, first and foremost, thank you so much for the opportunity to come to uh, be with you. To uh, Of course, we're members here, and we've uh, a lot of people I know we haven't met yet. We uh, are meeting more and more faces along the way. We've uh, moved to this area about a year ago, and uh, we live in Lebanon, but uh, we've really made our home here, and you've all just uh, really helped us to feel so welcome. So I just want to say thank you, first and foremost, on behalf of my family and I, for uh, welcoming us and with such uh, open arms. And, and I thank you for this invitation to be able to speak with you tonight. Uh, I was excited to see uh, David's uh, text when he first asked me to, to do this. And uh, I was certainly grateful for the opportunity and for the elders. I thank you for taking a chance and a risk uh, on me. No, I really, I really thank you so much uh, for the opportunity. Um, you know, consistent with the theme of the day on friendship and, and uh, relationships, I would like for us to turn to Luke chapter 15. So if you would, turn over to your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. It's a story that we're familiar with and have probably read many times, but I think there are so many little nuggets in there that continue to make this story fresh and it continues to rejuvenate my faith and my love for my God. It's one of my favorite parables. And uh, if I had a favorite, of course, usually uh, my favorite parable that I, uh, that I have is the one that I'm studying at the time. Um, kind of like the books of the Bible, right? Well, I love Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son as it's sometimes called. I like to refer to it as the the parable of the prodigal sons with an S, um, because really there are two prodigal sons, as we'll identify in just a little bit. But before we get into the text itself, I'd like to begin with a story that I think illustrates the points that I think uh, Jesus wants us to make, and it's a, a bit of a, uh, a humor to go along with it, but I, I think it makes the point. You know, there's um, a blind man who walks into a restaurant. And he sits down and he wants to order his food. Um, so the waiter, he comes over to his table and he asks the guy, he says, well, what do, you, what do you have? What would you like to order? Well, before ordering, the blind man said, you know, I, I would like to tell you a blonde joke. Well, the waiter kind of paused for a minute, wasn't sure exactly how to deal with this situation. So uh, he just came right out with it and decided to be blunt. He said, you know, before, sir, you tell that joke, I think you might want to know a few things. Now, first of all, there's a guy sitting just to the left of you. He's weighing about 350 pounds, and he's a professional wrestler, and he's a blonde. Not only that, but to the right of you, there's a gentleman who's, I don't know, weighing about 250 pounds or so, and he's a professional boxer. Back just behind you is a man who has his black belt in martial arts, uh, numerous martial arts, and he has all sorts of trophies, and, and he's just well known in the area for, uh, for martial arts. All three of them around you are blondes. I need to add also that I'm your waiter and I handle your food and I'm a blonde. Also, I should say that the cook that is taking care of your food, he's a blonde. 
Now, sir, that's five of us who are around you who are blondes. Are you sure you want to tell that joke? To that, the blind, blind man says, you know, I don't think so. I don't want to sit and explain it, have to sit and explain it five times. You know, Jesus was a master, not so much telling jokes, but telling stories, stories by which he was able to turn the tables against his adversaries. He was a master at this, and uh, so much so in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. So if you haven't turned there, please turn there. There's a very, very important lesson in this for all of us. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time, so we want to move rather quickly through the text, beginning in verse 1, because we want to set the tone of the text and the reason for the parables in the first two verses. The first two verses tell us that it's the Pharisees and the scribes who were complaining to Jesus, as they often did, by the way, that he was fellowshipping and, having, and being friends with tax collectors and sinners. That was an accusation that was often leveled against Jesus. And so they were saying, you know, you, you are condoning these individuals. Of course, he didn't condone any sin. Jesus never did that. But he did come to seek and save that which is lost. So yes, absolutely, he spent his time, a great deal of time, around those who were sinners, those who would be considered the, the margins of society, those who would be considered uh, by the Pharisees and Sadducees, those who were, quote, unworthy of the gospel. And who could blame them just for a moment? I mean, they were wrong, to be sure, but try to get into their minds just for a moment. Because this is the way it was in the first century. Because They understood what Daniel had predicted. It would be in the days of the Roman Empire that the Messiah was to come and he was going to destroy sin and get rid of sin from the land. And sinners would be abolished. And, and as Malachi would say, they would be like cleansing soap just to wash and clean Israel from all sinners and sins. Well, that's what they anticipated the Messiah to do. And then not only did they anticipate that, but they knew their own history. You see, they had already gone into many different types of captivities. For instance, in 722 BC, the Assyrians took the northern Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, into captivity. And then in 586 BC, approximately, then Nebuchadnezzar came and they took, he took away the, uh, the rest of the uh, Israelites, the southern kingdom, um, with the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, um, away into captivity as well. And so, and they knew why. Because Jeremiah had said it, Ezekiel had said it, the prophets had said it. It's because of the sins of Israel that God judged them and brought them into captivity. And so they knew their history. They knew the Bible very well. 
Not, not only after that, so finally they're restored, they're brought back, Ezra uh, and Nehemiah and, uh, and the works of Daniel and others. Finally they, they come back and they restore the land, they come back to their land. But then again, once again, we don't get this from the Bible, but what's called the intertestamental period, the time period between the events described in, uh, in the latter part of the, the Old Testament, um, uh, Zechariah and Malachi and Haggai, and then you get all the way up till John the Baptist, you got about a 400-year period. But during that time period, there was a people known as the Seleucids. At the leadership of somebody by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he's another ruler who came and just destroyed and sacked the city of Jerusalem and, and, and again wiped uh, Jerusalem away from the residents, uh, took the residents away uh, from their own homeland. We don't get that from the Bible, that's history. And Israel, the, the Jews knew that, the Pharisees knew that. They also knew why, because Daniel had predicted, and saw why, and Jeremiah had predicted this as well. It was again because of their sinfulness, their unfaithfulness to the covenant of God. So again, they're seeing a pattern. When we're unfaithful to the covenant, when we have sinners in the land, we are brought into captivity for judgment. And then finally, of course, we come to the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire. And Israel, again, is in captivity. They're, in essence, they're, they're free to worship their God. They're free to do a lot of things as long as they pay, pay tribute to Caesar and pay the taxes and so forth. But they're still under control of another government. And they're waiting for their Messiah to come, as they thought was predicted, to relinquish them of political power and to free them, to allow them to be an independent people again. And so that's what they expected of the Messiah, to get rid of sin and sinners and to get rid of the Roman government and so that they could be a free people again. And here comes this Jesus, this guy by the name of Jesus. He is anything but what they thought a Messiah would look like or be or teach And so Jesus comes around and he's not getting rid of sinners. He's not cleansing the land of sin in their minds. Instead, he seems to be from their perspective of their their distorted perspective. He seems to be encouraging it. He's bringing tax collectors and prostitutes and harlots and all these people who should have been cast out of the land. He's inviting them into his kingdom. No wonder the Pharisees were so angry. You know, one of the reasons the Pharisees were created in the first place, which again, we don't get in the Bible, but it's sometime in the intertestamental period, was because they wanted to guard the law of God. But they did it in such a way that they guarded it to where they added laws and added more laws and added their traditions. And they did it at first for good motives. They had good intentions. They wanted people to be sure to observe the laws of God. And so they protected the laws of God by making traditions to keep people so far from disobeying God that... Uh, they, they would have to obey the traditions of the elders. Well, Jesus violated the traditions of the elders, never violated God's covenant or God's laws, but they equated Jesus coming and challenging their tradition, and they equated that to challenging the very authority of God himself. 
And so he came, like Jesus said, to seek and to save that which is lost. They didn't understand what the cleansing of Malachi was talking about. They didn't understand what Jeremiah was saying when he's going to come and bring a new covenant to true, the true Israel of God, encompassing and including Gentiles and people. And, and, and the fact that how he was, they were going to, God was going to get rid of sins wasn't to obliterate sinners, but forgiveness and love by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They didn't get that. And so because of that, they had all sorts of prejudice in their minds. And so that's sort of the background of verse 1 and 2 in a nutshell. Um, So these Pharisees and these scribes had all sorts of preconceived notions as to who who the Messiah would be, what he would do, and how he would do it. And this is certainly not how he was supposed to do it. And so Jesus tells these stories. Three stories in one chapter. First, the story of the sheep and the shepherd. 100 sheep in his flock and one leaves. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes after and he follows that one and he gets the one and he brings it home. He finds it. The second story, of course, is about money, about coins. This woman, she loses a coin, and, and, and this, these, ten, these ten, sorry, ten silver coins she has, but she loses one, and she tears up the house because of the value of one silver coin. She knows the value of it and what happens. So she, lost, she loses it, she finds it. And in both cases, whether it was the, the, the shepherds and the sheep, or whether it was the woman and the silver coins, in both cases, when they find what they were looking for, they invite all their friends and they throw a party, they throw a celebration. And so if you would, you know, just sort of in your mind's eye, in those first two parables, those very short parables, uh, just there's three basic points to both of those. Lost. Found party. Lost sheep, finds him, brings him home, invites the friends, there's a party, a celebration. And I can imagine the Pharisees being okay with that. You see, we can't see the story of the prodigal son by itself, disconnected from the other two stories. Because it's the other two stories that I believe Jesus is setting them up. Setting his hearers up to understand better the third story about the prodigal son. You see, they would have agreed wholeheartedly. They would have been able to say, Amen, Jesus. Of course the shepherd would go and and go and find that one sheep. That just makes sense. That's his livelihood. He's going to try to keep and maintain and protect all that he has of course the woman is going to go and find that silver coin that's valuable to her that's money after all i can just hear the amens up till this point they would have had no trouble at all with these first two stories and just imagine what Jesus is doing in his ultimate, his infinite wisdom. Jesus is setting them up saying yes to the first story, yes to the second story. Well, what will they do with the next story? Because the first one deals with sheep, the second one deals with coins, and the third one deals with a human being. 
What will they do with that one? So each one, lost, found, party. Verse 4, what man among you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one lost, does not have 99 in the wilderness, goes after it, and uh, which is, of course, then in verse 5, and it says, and when he has found it, found, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice, party. There's the three points. Same way with verse 8 through 10. A woman having 10 silver coins, she loses it, lost, verse 9. And when she finds it, she's found, what does she do? Invites and calls all her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me, party. A celebration for something that's so valuable to them. And so we come. With that in mind, verse 11, to the story of the prodigal son, or the story of the lost son, or however you want to word it. But verse 11, let's read down through verse 16 together. Then Jesus, he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them His livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on wild or prodigal living. But when he had spent all there, arose a a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his herds to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, what Jesus is doing with this guy. Jesus is piling, up, piling it on, piling all these sins, all these things that the Pharisees and the, the scribes who he's talking about, anybody who's listening, he's piling it on saying how bad this guy really is. This guy's deserving of death. I mean, look at it. I count six sins that this guy commits in the mind of the Pharisee as he does this to his father. The first of which is his request. The first request Uh, He basically goes up, he says, Dad, you know, I I know that this is for a time that when you die, you know, we get our inheritance. But can we just sort of skip that part and you just give me your inheritance now and, uh, and, you know, we can call it good and I'll just be on my way. Now, it it is true that legally speaking, that the father would divide up who would get what before his death, but it was unheard of, unheard of for the father to actually give the inheritance, his inheritance to his children before his death. So this story is definitely a parable, a story that is uh, very atypical. It is just not, it just did not happen. And so the Pharisees listening to the story already would have thought in their minds, particularly verses that talks about how their, how sons, you know, if they rebel against their fathers, they're deserving of death. They would have thought this alone 
makes this guy deserving of death. He is, he is disrespecting and spitting on a grave that hasn't even been dug yet for his father. And so he requests this inheritance. Well, what is the inheritance? Well, tradition was, especially if you had two sons and the family, that the older son would get the majority, two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would get one-third. And so the Bible says, and the story says, that the, that the father divided up all of his livelihood, everything he owned to his two sons. So two-thirds to the older, one-third to the younger. So the younger son has what he wanted, what he requested, one-third of all of his father's possessions. And what does he do? Here's the second sin. In verse 13, it says, the Bible says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with wild or prodigal living. I mean, this guy takes his father's inheritance and he squanders it. He wastes it on sinful living. So on top of the fact that he's deserving of death for what, how he treats his father, now it's what he does with his father's inheritance. This guy, he just needs to be cut off. If this was a true story, the Pharisees would have never given this guy another hearing from the first point, let alone the second point. This guy goes off. Now, there's really two things, two sins that this guy commits. He not only leaves his father's home, but he leaves his father's land. He goes to a far country, which is basically a euphemism for saying Gentile land. He leaves Israel, the land of Israel, the promised land that God had given to the nation of Israel. And he goes to a Gentile territory. He goes to uh, the, the... the places that the Jews would consider the most wicked of wicked. Man, this is the, the first century version of, of, um, of the worst parts of Las Vegas or whatever it is. And man, he goes and he lives it up and he wastes all of his money. All of what his father gave to him. So there's two problems with that. He's in Gentile land, he leaves his father's land, and he wastes everything. That his father worked so hard for. But he piles it up. Jesus isn't through yet. In verse 14 it says. But when he had spent all. There arose a severe famine in the land. And he began to be in want. And there he went and joined himself. Now notice. He joined himself. To a citizen of that country. The phrase joined himself to is a euphemistic way of saying he became a slave of. He had nothing. He was desperate. So he decides to go and become somebody's slave of that far country, of that land. In other words, here is a Jew, here's an Israelite who becomes a slave of a Gentile. Now I already said in the very beginning what that meant to a Pharisee or a scribe or somebody in the first century who's trying to avoid everything possible about uh, slavery and what slavery meant in their minds. Man, they've been in Egyptian slavery, and that's how it started. Uh, uh, Assyrian, Babylonian, 
uh, the Seleucids, Roman, they've, they've constantly been enslaved by nations. And here's a guy, a Jewish individual, an Israelite, and he voluntarily becomes a slave of this man who's in a far country. This guy is the dis- most despicable of the despicable Again, in the minds of the hearers that's listening to what Jesus is saying. But it's not just that. Jesus piles it up and makes it even worse. He becomes a slave of this man in this far country. And notice the job that he gets. The job that he gets is to take care of the swine that his owner possesses. Now I think we all are familiar probably or most of us familiar with the way the Israelites viewed swine. They were unclean animals. They were not allowed to be eaten. They were not taken care of. They they were not raised in the land of Israel. And here this guy, he becomes a slave and not only becomes a slave, but he begins to work by feeding the pigs. But not only that, there's, one more, there's another thing that he does. This guy is so desperate, so low, so far away from his father's home that he now is not only feeding the pigs, but the Bible says that he's willing and desperate to eat what the pigs are eating. He's not just willing to eat the unclean animals, the pigs. He's willing to eat what the unclean animals are eating. This guy can't get any lower than this. You see how deep Jesus is digging this guy far further and further down in the minds of the Jews. And that's in verse 6 where he was gladly, he would have gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. So that's it. There's no way, there's no hope for this guy with the Pharisees. I mean, this guy, he, he deserves death six times over. But how does the story continue? Verse 17. Because remember how they valued the one sheep. Remember how they valued the one coin. How are they going to value the one individual human being? Verse 17. But when this man... The younger son, when he came to himself, came to his senses, we call this repentance. But when he came to himself, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? He realizes how stupid and ridiculous he had been. And how horrible he treated his own father. Verse 18, he says, I know what I'll do. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, if you wanted another lesson, which we don't have time for, but there's two words um, that make up the mindset of the guy before He had this change of heart. And those two words are found back in verse 12 when his request was made, when he used these two words, Father, give me. Now notice, after his repentant mindset, you know it's a repentant mindset because it goes from a give 
me mindset to now in verse 19 when he comes to the when he's thinking about coming to the father and thinking about the conversation he has a make me mindset instead of the give me selfish it's make me do with me what you will That's what God wants to do with us, by the way. He wants us to have that mindset. He wants to do with us what his will is and to mold us and to fashion us into what he has called us to be. So he says, make me one of your hired servants. That's genuine repentance. And he arose in verse 20 and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, The father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I'll stop there just for a second as a footnote. Now, understand how the Pharisees operated. Now, I'm not saying they're the same in every respect, but but if you could imagine sort of the attitude that they would have, it would be something somewhat comparable to what you think of as the mafia today, the, the godfathers. You know, they, they're slow, they walk, and they're an authority, they're the, they're the ones in charge, and you know what they don't do? They don't run for anybody. They make other people run for them. And if you want something, buddy, you better be running to them. They don't run for anyone. Well, it's in that light, that particular analogy, the Pharisees just didn't run. It was a sign of weakness. You didn't run. If you are the one that's in need of repentance and you're the one and you're the sinner, brother, you better be coming and running and begging on your hands and knees. And that's what they'd be expecting of a man like this. Now, he should be dead, but if he's dead, if he's not dead, at least he should be crawling on his hands and knees and the father should be just sitting back waiting for him and waiting for him to kiss his ring, kiss his hand, begging to come back. But that's not what happens. I can imagine just the red just climbing up the Pharisees' necks and their faces as they hear Jesus telling the story of this father seeing the son afar off. And what does he do? In verse 20 again, he arose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, he never even got a chance to give his prepared speech. His father saw him, had compassion, and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Think about that for a minute. We have... A God in heaven who loves us so much, is so compassionate for us, so merciful, so quick to forgive. And that's what the Bible says, that God is quick to forgive. He wants to forgive us. He's pulling for us. He wants us to be in his home. And when we are, we've lost our way, he wants us to find our way back, but he doesn't just wait for us. He runs after us when we make our move toward him. We have a God who runs. He runs after you. There's no shame in that. And God doesn't see it the way the Pharisees do. Not at all. 
In verse 21, in fact, not only does the father do this, but the son, the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and your sight. He was able to give portion of his speech. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father sort of stops him there. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and his sandals on his feet and bring, now notice, the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. And verse 24 are three main points. The points we've already seen with the sheep, the points we've already seen with the coins. Lost, found, party. Look at verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. A celebration is what takes place in heaven when sinners come to God. God doesn't keep you at arm's length. And whatever sins that you might have committed, how long that you might have been away from him, and how badly you've wanted to come to him, but you think, you know, I just don't deserve it. God could never forgive me for what I've done. God can't do this. Maybe I've got to earn my way. Maybe I've got to prove to him for myself and do certain things and wait so many months before I can finally be fully restored. No, it doesn't doesn't work like that. It's immediate. That forgiveness was there, and the father ran, and he celebrated immediately. He kills this fatted calf. Now, that fatted calf is going to be found three times in this text, and there's a reason for that, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But in verse 25, now the older son. Now, here's where the story sort of takes a turn. It's almost like, okay, we've got it wrapped up. We've got each... Three, of, three stories wrapped up in a nice bow where we've got an end of the story. The first one, okay, they found the sheep, party, celebration, friends invited. Found the coin, party, celebration, friends invited. Yes, great. Now we find, the father finds, the son comes back and he, he's rejoicing. And all is good and all's well. Or is it? Well, it is except for one, and that's the older son that's still and has not left his father and is still at home and is still working the ground, and he's honoring the father in every respect that he thought he was honoring the father. And and he, by the way, in this story is the Pharisees who thought they had always been there. Well, they might have been there in in the flesh. Then this, this son may never have left his father's home like his younger son did. But I guarantee you that this older son is just as much a prodigal son as the younger. And in this story, as it ends, it ends really as him being the prodigal son with an open-ended uh, way to end. We'll talk about that in a second. But here's this older son. Look at his attitude. In verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. 
but he was angry. And he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and he pleaded with him. Now, notice again, the father is not indiscriminate. He loves the whole world. Just like John 3 verse 16 said, God loves the whole world. He loved the prodigal son who left and he loves the prodigal son who's still home. He wants everyone to be saved. The father initiates both. He runs after the prodigal son, the younger son, and he goes to, initiates the conversation with the older son who is bitter and angry. But the father loves him too. And so he comes, the father comes. In verse 29, and so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I maybe make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. What is it with this fatted calf? It was the best of the best. And this guy was angry. The older brother is angry. Why is he angry? Well, for many reasons, he's angry in his own mind. He, he feels betrayed by his father because his father, he feels like his father didn't treat him uh, with, with the same kind of um, uh, love and dignity as, as the son who doesn't deserve it, but only deserves death. And, and on top of that, listen to this. Who in this story is the only one who owns anything? It's not the younger son. He took all of one third of, his fa- of everything his father owned. And he went and wasted it. That's gone. It's erased. The only thing left that his father ever owned was two thirds. Two thirds is left. And who's belong? who does that belong to? Not the father. Look at the first couple of verses of this portion of the story again. It says the father gave all of his livelihood to his two sons. That means the older son is the only one at this time in this story who owns anything. He's the only one who has anything. He's got those two thirds of everything. And and you know what the prized possession is? In the context of this time in the first century, the prized possession is the fatted calf. It was prized for both uh, a meal. I mean, it was, it was so big it could feed enough to fill the party, but it was, it was big enough. But it was also so valuable for religious reasons. Because when it was first prepared for the meal, it was prepared in such a way that it would be such that it would be dedicated to God. I can just again see and hear it. See, the original readers would have picked up on this quickly. The fatted calf, the best of the best, the first one, the, the, the first of its kind. And whose fatted calf is it? It's not the father. How dare the father take what belongs to him and give it to his undeserving son? I deserve that. I didn't leave. I went to church every Sunday. I I sang the songs. I heard the sermons. I gave what was in the plate. 
I said my three prayers a day. I've done this. I've done that. I was a religious guy. I had not left my father's house. And yet, he did. In his heart, he had been gone for a long time. And so the father is inviting him. Inviting him back into his friendship, his relationship, his loving arms. He's family. He's family and he wants his older son to get over this resentment. To come together with his son. To forgive his son. So that they could be family once again. In verse 31 The Bible says, and he said to him, son, the father said to him, son, you have always been with me. And that's true. You've been right here. You didn't leave. You've always been with me and all that I have is yours. Look at that again. All that I have is yours. I already made the point, but the text makes the point. That's literally true. Everything I have is yours. I don't own anything. I've given all of it to you and you're complaining. And then verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad. Now notice the two of the three points that Jesus ends this parable with. Your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Oh, where's the third point? Jesus ends the parable right there. It's kind of an odd place to end the parable. Why do you think he did that? I believe, number one, as he's speaking to the Pharisees, he's leaving it open as to what they're going to do, how they're going to respond to the story. Are they going to add that third point in? What are they going to do? Are they going to rejoice or are they going to continue their hard hearts and refuse those who are entering the kingdom of God. We don't choose our brothers and sisters. God does. When they choose God, God brings them into his family. And there are so many differences in the body of Christ and so many different backgrounds, so many different whatever it is that has divided and plagued people in the past uh, for whatever reason. Look, if Paul can bring Jew and Gentile together, he can bring anybody together in the first, today in the 21st century. We are a church that so desperately needs to hear and finish this story. Because I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. This story is an invitation. It's an invitation to complete how the story is going to end. How will the story end? Well, that's up to you. And it's up to me. Will we rejoice over the sinners who repent? Because the angels do. You notice I skipped intentionally. Back to verse 7. With the sheep, Jesus made the application. I say to you, likewise, there are more jo- there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just person who need no repentance. Verse 10, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The question is, will we join the party? 
And so tonight, I offer the same invitation. God's invitation, not mine. It's God's invitation. Number one, first, maybe you are like the prodigal son. Either one of them. Maybe you're the prodigal son who left God's kingdom, who left God's ways, and you're living a a, a lifestyle that's not consistent with God's kingdom principles. And you know that, and you want to come back. Know that God is quick to forgive, and he, with open arms, will run after you when you make that decision, and he will join you and celebrate with that party in heaven with the angels themselves. Maybe you haven't been faithful. Maybe, though, you haven't left anywhere. Maybe you're still here. But maybe as you reflect inside your inner heart, maybe you've had resentment for some brother or sister. Because in Matthew chapter 5, you know, that's just as true. When Jesus said, you know what? Before you come to worship me and you present your gift at the altar and the context of Matthew 5 it's the temple of course but the principle is in worship he said before you come and worship me before you come to try to give me what you want to give me with a whole and genuine and sincere heart you leave that gift at the altar and you go and you make amends and you make it right with your brother and your sister you do everything in your power because friendships is what Jesus Christ came to do and to build That's why he came to this world, to make a new family. 